Good morning and welcome to this special podcast edition of Backwoods Theology. We want to welcome you back to the program. Uh, I am behind the locked vault door here in the recording studio coming to you with this new episode. Now, this is a special episode in that I am by myself. My friends are not here. Uh, Chad and Josh are not here. And there is a couple reasons for that. One is Chad is literally out of state this week and enjoying some much needed time. So, You can be in prayer for him, thankful, and I'm just excited for him. Uh, He can talk a little bit about it at our next episode where the Lord's allowed him to go. And Josh is busily. Uh, Fall is coming, and he is a painter on the side, and he is busily trying to get all the exterior work done that he can before the cold weather sets in. So that is the first reason uh, the, my two friends are away. Second reason would be the three of us agreed that this episode, which would be my response to the last episode, that Josh and Chad wanted me to be able to give it uh, undisturbed, where I could just give it at one time. And uh, so that's what I'm going to be doing today. Now, before this episode is released... Josh and Chad will thoroughly listen to it, make sure that they're in agreement, that the episode be placed onto the Backwoods Theology podcast. Uh, We do everything together, uh, but they just really felt that the information that I was going to be giving, that it needed to be um, unencumbered, um, that I could just produce my thoughts and give my thoughts. And I appreciate that guys so very, very much. I'm so thankful for them. They really challenge my thinking and we are in this together. Now, before we start, you need to realize that there's no quick response to this. I have no idea how long this episode will be. We live in a Twitter society where you have 120 characters, and we live in a society in church where it's chapter and verse, chapter and verse, just give me chapter and verse. And there's just so much of the Word of God where you can't do that. You are putting scriptures together, you're developing thoughts, you're also dealing with decades of what people have been led to believe. And so I just wanted to share with you that there's no quick response. There's no turning to, you know, Ephesians 5 and verse 11, and there's our answer in one verse. It's, that is not going to happen. Um, couple things that I think that you will need for this episode. Uh, Number one, I know many people listen to podcast episodes while they're working, or I know I listen to them when I'm out in the woods cutting wood or uh, hauling out trees out of the woods, or you're listening to it as you're driving down the road or whatever it is that you do for work. Um, Now, you can definitely do that. I know that's how many people do it. This is going to be the type of episode where you really are going to need your Bible in front of you. And 
you're going to have to be able to go to these passages of Scripture. So you're more than welcome to listen to it while you're driving down the road. However, in order for you to fully grasp what I'm going to be giving to you, you're probably going to have to listen to it a second time when you will actually be in study mode. You're at your place. You've got your notes out. You've got your Bible out. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to mention to you. You may even want to have two Bibles. I actually have two Bibles because there's going to be times where I'm going to say, hey, compare these two passages of Scripture. I'm going to have you comparing the book of Deuteronomy with the book of Revelation and just say, hey, look at these two passages uh, of Scripture. And so it would be helpful at sometimes during this episode for you to actually have two Bibles. So if you have two Bibles, that would be even greater. Uh, the second thing that I would say to you is, is if you're going to listen to this podcast episode, listen to it with readiness of mind. Uh, I know that sometimes there's certain topics which someone may speak of, and you know, I, I know it's with me as well, where I am no before the man even begins. And so I understand that this is a topic which goes against perhaps anything we've heard before. And I know that perhaps there would be some that would listen to this where, quite frankly, they're not, even, they're not interested in hearing what I have to say. And if that's the case, I understand that. Um, but I would also say, why are, you listening? why are you listening to this episode if you're going into it where you're not even going to look up the scriptures? And so uh, the Bereans were commended, I think it was in Acts 17, where it says they received the word with all readiness of mind. I so desire, I want to know the Word of God better. And over the past 20 years, uh, as I've been preaching and teaching the Word of God, the Word of God has proved me wrong so many times. And I am so happy for that because as I get to know Him better, as He reveals His Word to me, and as I become closer with Him, I, I'm, you know, I am not against being found a liar and, you know, let God be true. And so I would just encourage you, go to the passages that I have to, sh to share with you. I'm not trying to lead anyone astray. In fact, uh, I'm just trying to um, expound the Word of God more perfectly, just as, just as Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos. And that's what I am trying to do. As the Lord teaches me things, I just try to teach others. I believe in the authority of the Bible. I want that to be clear. I, I believe in the authority of the scriptures. Now, as I say that, I'm sure every listener that's listening to that, to that statement would agree with that statement. But let me share with you what I mean by that. I believe the word of God is its own authority. I believe in the sole authority of the word of God. What I mean by that is I don't need anything else besides the word of God for me to be able to come to its understanding. I don't need science. I don't need history. I don't need philosophy. I don't need the words of men. Uh, I don't need the traditions of the church. I don't need those things to be able to understand the Word of God. Uh, I, I put it this way. I believe the Word of God points backward within itself. I believe the Word of God points forward within itself. But I don't believe the Word of God points outward. Points outward. 
What I mean is it doesn't point to another authority for its clarification. It doesn't point outside of itself for its interpretation. Why would the word of God do that? It is the ultimate authority. It is the sole authority. It is the final authority, whatever word you want to use. Um, I like to use the word sole authority because if I say the word of God is my final authority, what that makes me think is, okay, after I have, after I have considered other authorities, then the word of God is my final authority. The problem is with that, my mind becomes so cluttered with those other authorities. By the time I get to the word of God, uh, many times my mind is clouded to what the word of God is saying. So I just wanted to state that I believe in the authority of the word of God, and I know you do too. I know you do as well. Um, So the entire premise of what I am bringing is the fact that we do not need to leave the word of God for its understanding, that the word of God contains everything that we need to know for its own interpretation and understanding. And that is the premise that I am coming with, with these churches that are given to us in Revelation 2 and 3. I just want to show you that in order to understand what is being said about these seven churches of Revelation, I don't need to leave the Bible in order to understand what is being said. I can stay right within its pages. All of these things that are said in these seven letters have already been said in the word of God. I don't need to go outside it. I don't need to go to philosophy. I don't need to go to history. I don't need to go to tradition. I don't need to go to any of those things. Why would the Bible do that? Why would the Bible point the reader anywhere but to itself? Uh, That's just what I believe. And I hope that some of you might believe that as well at the end. Now, at the end of this episode, we still may not be in agreement. That is okay. I do not believe that this is a dividing issue. I do not believe that this is an issue where, well, unless we can agree, we just can't walk together. I believe that verse is misused so many times to break up fellowship among the brethren. Now, there are dividing issues, I grant you. I just do not believe this is one of them. The line between the church and Israel, I don't think, is a dividing issue. And so that is the issue at hand. The, you know, the division between the nation of Israel and the church and what is said in the word of God about each. And so that is the topic of discussion today. Um, we're going to study the book of La- forgive me we're going to study the church of Laodicea the reason i chose that one is because of the seven churches it is by far i believe the most famous and the most familiar i'm sure every one of you have heard the expression we are now in the laodicean period. Uh, I know that I've done that through the years and I'm sure that anyone who's been to church to any amount of time the laodicean age the age which The church, supposedly the church is in today, you're very familiar with that, 
And uh, so I decided to take that church just to go through and show you what I mean, that everything said unto this church of Laodicea is something that has already been said and taught to the nation of Israel. Um, Now, again, I believe the greatest hang-up, so to speak, the greatest hesitation, stumbling block, whatever, whatever um, word you want to use of you seeing these pointing back to the nation of Israel, the greatest hang-up is the use of the word church. And I, I admit to you, that was a, as I have been struggling over these passages of Scripture, how they pertain into the church, uh, it, it was always the use of the word church that was always the biggest hang-up for me. This must mean New Testament church age if the word church is used. And uh, you'll remember a previous episode where we talked about that, where we showed very clearly some other passages of Scripture that use the word church, which is clearly not speaking of our New Testament church age uh, in which we now live, that it's speaking of a different time. You remember we mentioned about in Acts chapter number seven, Stephen's reference to the church in the wilderness, which is clearly the nation of Israel as God called them out of Egypt. Uh, You heard us also mention uh, the reference in Hebrews 2 and verse number 12, which I believe is the world to come, where uh, it uses the word church. And then the use in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter, uh, is it 12 or 13, where it speaks of uh, the the church and assembly. I'm turning there now. I hate misquoting things. It's Hebrews 12 and verse number uh, 23. Hebrews 12, 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Well, I believe that this is during the uh, millennial reign of Christ. We see that because of verse 22. Uh, This isn't speaking of today's time. This is speaking of a different time. Now, you may say to yourself, okay, that's three passages. That is quite, and this word has been used with me quite a bit, and it's the word obscure. Well, these seem to be pretty obscure passages of Scripture. And uh, my response is, how many times does God have to say something for it to be important? Uh, But the second thing that I would say is we have to realize the, now I'm going to use a term here and I'll explain what I mean. We have to recognize the dispensational shift of the use of the word church. Um, What I mean by that is you will see a difference in between an Old Testament and a New Testament passage. And I believe the answer to that is a dispen- it's a different dispensation. So there's a, there's a shift. What I mean by that would be um, in, oh, I'm just trying to think of an example. An example would be Romans chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul quotes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul states, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're all very familiar with that verse. And he is clearly quoting from Joel's prophecy in Joel 2. It's either verse 31 or 32. Well, you go back to that 
reference and you will see everything is the same except that final word. In Joel, it will say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, shall be delivered. And what is the difference between the two? Uh, well, the difference is it, it's a different dispensation that is being stated. And there's a dispensational shift that is there. Again, there's no errors in the Bible. Uh, the Word of God is just pointing to a different dispensation. And uh, the same is the use of the word church. You could say, well, there's no use of the word church in the Old Testament. Well, it's because the Old Testament word is used. The New Testament word for the word mystery, the Old Testament word is the word secret out of Daniel chapter number two. And the New Testament actually links those two words together. The word mystery is the New Testament word. The Old Testament word for mystery is secret. You'll see that word secret used, what, eight, 10, 12 times in Daniel chapter number two when he is revealing the secret of the dream which Nebuchadnezzar had? Well, the Old Testament word for church is the word congregation, congregation. Um, again, you would say, well, what is the difference? Well, the difference would be it's a different dispensation. We know that, that the Old Testament word for church is congregation. We know that because of Hebrews 2 and verse 12, and I'd ask you to turn to that. Hebrews 2.12, and when you find Hebrews 2.12, then turn to Psalm 22, because Hebrews 2.12 is quoting Psalm 22. So have here's a great place for your two Bibles. You can compare two verses. If you'll notice in Hebrews 2.12, he is clearly quoting from the psalmist in verse 12 saying, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Well, we compare that with Psalm 22, and he is quoting verse 22. So Psalm 22 and 22, it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. So I believe Hebrews 2.12 is a key for us to being able to understand the church in the wilderness that Stephen uh, mentioned in Acts chapter number 7. Uh, that is not a mistake in Acts 7. Uh, when Stephen refers to the church in the wilderness. That would be Acts 7 and verse number 38. So that tells me I then have to consider at least the word congregation in the Old Testament. And when you study that word congregation, something very, very uh, enlightening will be shown unto, unto you. Now, let me just say this. Just the church in the wilderness and the New Testament church age today, there's different doctrine. We're looking for different things. I am not saying, and neither is the word of God saying, 
that the church in the wilderness functioned just as we do today. It does not, uh, and no one is declaring that. It is a different time. God worked differently in that time, but he still had a called-out assembly, and that word congregation is very, very key. Now, if you all have a Bible app, I have a Bible app that I just use to look up words. That isn't, uh, I don't use it for any other purpose. I don't read the commentary. I don't, uh, I just literally look up words and it gives me every use of the word. Well, I would have you bring up your Bible app and do a word search on the word congregation. Congregation. So type that in. And my Bible app, Again, you have to make sure you're on the King James Bible, Um, but my Bible app tells me that the word congregation, it uses 331 verses where the word congregation is used. Now, there's two very interesting things that I find when I look up this word congregation. One would be is if you scroll all the way to the end of your list, which it will take you a second to do that. It takes a second to go through 331 listings. Notice the final two listings for the word congregation. Can we derive that the word congregation is not a New Testament word? Notice out of the 331 times, 330 of them are in the Old Testament. The very final one is in Acts 13, where you'll see that this congregation is not uh, the congregation that we would look at as far as God's called out assembly. And I would say this as well, not all 331 times are used as God's called out assembly. You have to read the passages to gain the context. So the first thing that I notice is that the word congregation is not a New Testament word. It's not a word used in the epistles. Uh, In fact, now I believe, because I've for 20 years referred to this phrase, the church congregation. Well, I'm coming to the understanding now that that's redundant. (laughs) A A church congregation is a redundant term. Here's the second thing that I learned about my Bible app. The first thing I had you do was look at the final references to show that this is an Old Testament word. But notice, go all the way back to the very beginning and notice the first use of the word congregation. Where was it first used? It was first used in Exodus chapter number 12. Now, if you're a student of the Word of God, you know that Exodus 12 is a significant, significant passage in the history of the nation of Israel. This, is, this passage in Exodus chapter number 12 was so important that God changed their calendar for this event. This is the event in the history of the nation of Israel that probably God reminds them of the most. Exodus chapter number 12 is when Israel was called out of Egypt. Exodus 12 is the Passover. It is the blood over the doorpost. It is when Israel um, Israel uh, is going to be led out. And 
again, it is so significant in verse number two that God changes their entire calendar based on this event. And then you will notice in verse number three, the first use of the word congregation. This is the beginning of the church in the wilderness, the called out assembly. Exodus 12 and verse three, speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel. You'll notice that word congregation is used four times in this chapter, in Exodus chapter number 12. So what I'm saying is, is that it is not an obscure truth that this church in the wilderness is mentioned scores and scores of times in the Old Testament. So to say that a church cited um, using those three texts that we gave you, Acts 7, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12, is a minority principle, it is not. It is not. Because you now have to go into the Old Testament and study all these uses, and you will find scores and scores in the Psalms. It will say, give praise in the congregation. Uh, so you have to consider that. And that really helped me to be able to understand because I believe that in Hebrew, uh, forgive me, that in Revelation 2 and 3, God is preparing Israel to once again be the church in the wilderness. That is the point of the seven letters. He is preparing them. He is about ready to take them out into the wilderness where they will once again be the church in the wilderness. And so that is what I'm trying to show you out of these letters um, in Revelation. So I just wanted to mention that, that the that the, the big stumbling block that people might have is the use of that word church. And I just wanted to show you that this church in the wilderness. Now, the reason why the word church is used in Acts chapter number seven is, of course, the dispensational shift. It's after the death of the testator. So it's a different dispensation. So he's not going to use, in the reference to the church in the wilderness, he is not going to use the word church anymore. Uh, forgive me. He is not going to use the the word congregation, he's going to use the word church. Uh, and the use in the one use in the New Testament, Acts 13 43, that is not a reference to the church in the wilderness. And so that is why the word congregation is used. Hopefully that was a little bit helpful to you. Some of you still might not understand that, but I at least wanted to address that. And then finally, uh, I believe that the seven letters of Revelation overview, gives an overview, because um, you'll notice at the end of Revelation chapter number one, the church is a mystery that is revealed. Well, Paul revealed mysteries unto the church, but the church itself was never a mystery. But to the nation of Israel, it is. The church is a mystery unto the nation of Israel. And that is why the mystery is revealed in Revelation chapter number one and verse number 20. God reveals this mystery. This, this is not a mystery that needs to be revealed unto the church. The church, has never, the church itself has never been a mystery. But to the Jew, the church is a mystery. And so this mystery is revealed in chapter number one of Revelation. And then I believe these seven letters to these seven churches 
is an overview of the relationship of God with the nation of Israel, just as Stephen did that in Acts 7. It's, it's amazing when you read Revelation 2 and 3 and you compare it with uh, Stephen's message in Acts 7, as well as another passage of Scripture that I'm going to show you. It's amazing um, the resemblance in these passages. So again, uh, the, the letters to these seven churches is an overview of the relationship. It begins with leaving your first love. It begins with leaving your first love, and it ends with Christ coming to get them at his return at the place of habitation in Revelation chapter 3. So it begins with the very beginning. First love, you've left your first love. It talks about all their whoredoms, all their uh, unfaithfulness, and then it shows their restoration at the end. Um, That... You know, in order to understand that principle, you would have to have Ezekiel 16 and 17 uh, as well for you to be able to see that. It begins with, because thou hast left thy first love. Well, who in the word of God, if we're going to stay within the Bible, who in the word of God is known for leaving their first love? Who has already done that? Uh Do we go to the church? Do we see in the epistles where a church has left their first love? Or do we already see established for us in the pages of Scripture someone who has already left their first love? Well, that is Ezekiel 16, and I'd encourage you to go back to Ezekiel 16. Uh, Again, we're just giving an overview, and then we're going to study the church at Laodicea. But in Acts chapter number, uh, forgive me, Ezekiel chapter number 16, Ezekiel 16 takes Israel from its very beginning until it shows all their whoredoms, all their lovers, and then it shows their restoration. So Ezekiel 16, I believe as well, is an overview of the relationship of God with the nation of Israel. You will notice God starts in the very beginning in verse 3. He speaks of their birth and their nativity. He mentions their nativity as well in verse number four. Israel is shown as a baby that is born, that is cast in a field and abandoned to die. But God finds this baby in the field and chooses it and claims it for himself. You will notice that in verses four, five, and six. Um, Notice verse eight. Remember, church at Ephesus, thou hast left thy first love. Now, the way that that's written, that means that, now that doesn't mean you've just gotten cold to the things of God. If you've left your first love, what does that denote? That you have another love, that there are other lovers. The emphasis of first love tells you that there's other lovers, Well, that's what Ezekiel 16 very clearly states for us. Here's the first love. Verse 8, Ezekiel uh, 16, verse 8. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. 
you are my love. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter number seven to the calling of the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy seven. The Bible says very clearly why God chose them. The Bible says in verse number seven of Deuteronomy seven, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Ezekiel 16, it was the time of love. And God set his love upon them, and he was their first love. Um, Verses 9 down through verse uh, number 13 just speaks to all that God did for them to make them beautiful. But then in verses 14 and 15, we begin to see that they have left their first love. Multiple times in Ezekiel 16, they are called a harlot. It speaks of their whoredom, their harlotry. It speaks of their other lovers. It speaks of, um, look at verse 32, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband, You've left your first love and went unto other lovers. They gave gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers. Verse 33. Notice uh, um, verse 36. Thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers. Verse 37. Behold, therefore, I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure. Who do you think the enemies of Israel are? It is all the lovers that they have gone to, and God is going to gather them together, and they are going to gather them against um, uh, the nation of Israel. You'll notice Gentile nations given all through this chapter of Ezekiel about that Israel has gone unto them, and they have become their lovers, and God is going to bring all these Gentile nations against the nation of Israel. Um, God is bringing judgment. You will see in Ezekiel 16, he is going to bring them judgment. And this culminates um, down at verse 59. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which hath despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Notice Israel has broken the covenant which is that covenant of love that God made. He spread his skirt over them. But you'll notice even though they've broken the covenant, verse 59, verse 60, God will not. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed. That's a reference to their nakedness. In Revelation 3, they think they're clothed, but they're naked. When thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. So uh, Ezekiel 16 shows from the very beginning all the way through their whoredoms to when God is going to bring them judgment during the time of Jacob's trouble and when he is going to bring them once again and reestablish them once again. Uh, I find it interesting in Ezekiel 17, the very next chapter, is the parable of the eagle. 
that is going to notice this is the sifting of the nation of Israel during the time of tribulation, where an eagle is going to take some and going to take them into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he's going to take of the seed of the land, verse 5, and planted it in a fruitful field. This is that place of habitation in the wilderness. Those who overcome is going to be taken to the fruitful field. Those who do not overcome will be taken to the land of traffic, set in a city of merchants. They're going to be taken into captivity. Strong coincidence, right? That it's actually an eagle, according to Revelation 12, that is going to take those out into the wilderness to be protected. Here's another extreme coincidence in the Word of God. Right after Ezekiel 16, which I believe is an overview of Revelation 2 and 3, we have the parable of the eagle in the very next chapter, taking those, taking some to uh, a city of traffic of merchant, which I believe is Babylon, uh, Revelation 17. And then you have the others being taken to a different place, a place of habitation. Um, Anyway, I said all that to say, that is what I believe Revelation 2 and 3 is. It is an overview of God's relationship from the very beginning, from them leaving their first love until they are restored and taken into the wilderness. My proof text to that would be Ezekiel 16 and 17, uh, that that is what these chapters are about. Once again, God is preparing them to once again be the church in the wilderness. Just as they have been the church in the wilderness before, they are going to be the church in the wilderness again. So that is an overview. Let's turn now. Let's put that to the test. And again, let's go to the most famous of the church letters. And I would, I would argue that that would be the church at Laodicea. It is the most famous. We have VBS songs written about this particular letter. Uh, You've heard many, many messages where the pastor will show you that we are in this Laodicean period. Um, Again, I'm not going to talk about the church age theory. Um, That's not the purpose of this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to show you that every single thing that is written to this church at Laodicea has already been said unto the nation of Israel. Um, And that's what I want to be able to show you in this particular podcast. The difficulty of starting with Laodicea is that I believe these letters build upon themselves. And I'm going to point that out as we go on, but there are three phrases which are given in each letter. I believe what is said to one church is said to all of them. There's three phrases which are given in each letter. I know thy works. Excuse me. That first phrase, I know thy works. The second phrase, to him that overcometh, is in every letter. And then the third phrase that is in every letter is the phrase, to him that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Um, All three of those phrases are in each. Now, I want to cite in on that final phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I use that phrase to understand two things about these letters. One, what he says to one of them, he is saying to all of them. Two, 
I believe this points them back to the teachings and the parables of Christ. Because the only other place in the Bible where you have the language about having an ear, let them hear. There's only one other time in the Bible where I can find such language, and that is the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I read this letter, I'm going to be looking for the truths of the parables in this letter uh, because of that phrase. And so we are now in the church of the Laodiceans, and by the use of that phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That is in verse 22 of chapter 3. I know that there's going to be parable teaching in this letter because of the use of that phrase. So let's begin. We're just going to go right down through it, and we're, uh, we're just going to point every phrase back to what has already been said. Again, The Word of God, I don't believe, is going to point outside of itself. It's not going to point to another authority. It's going to point to itself for its fulfillment, for its interpretation, for its understanding. Revelation 3.14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. Now you'll notice in each letter, God introduces himself in a different manner, in a different way. Every way that God introduces himself is a way that he has already introduced himself to the nation of Israel. Notice, these things saith the amen. Now, if you study the word amen in the word of God, it is derived obviously from a Hebrew word. Now, we have the word amen several times in the epistles. Um, Typically, not always, but typically the word amen would be used to end an epistle. However, that is not always the case. There are times where there's an amen within the epistle. For instance, the book of Romans has seven amens, which I believe brings to a conclusion a particular section of the book of Romans. Um, Romans, I believe, is given in seven, excuse me, seven sections, and each one ends with the word amen. But what I don't find in the epistles is a command for the church to say amen. Now, as I say that, I love it when people say amen. I, it shows that they are in agreement. It shows that they are believing the truth that's being given unto them. I love the word amen. But I don't find a place where the church is commanded to say amen. Not so with the nation of Israel. The word amen derives from the nation of Israel, and it's inseparably linked to the giving of the law. When the law was given unto them, they were required, they were commanded to say amen. Um, You can go to the, the passage of scripture where the word amen is used the most is Deuteronomy 17, which is the second, that's what Deuteronomy means, dut means two or second, and it's the second giving of the law to that next generation of Israel, and they are commanded to say amen, and you will see that in Deuteronomy chapter number 27. So amen is undeniably to the Jew, amen is undeniably linked to the giving of the law. So by God introducing himself as the amen, What he is saying is, not only is this the law, this is the lawgiver speaking unto thee. 
Second, the faithful and true witness. Well, that phrase is only used one other time in the Bible. Now, when you think of faithful and true, immediately we think of Revelation 19 at the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is true. Uh, he is, that name is given uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. But I believe this reference is actually pointing Israel back to Jeremiah chapter number 42. This is the only other time that the that this phrase is used, and you'll notice uh, that there is a, they identify themselves as the remnant, the remnant. They, they come unto the prophet Jeremiah, and uh, they want to, oh, they want to acknowledge that they are going to do whatever the Lord tells them to do. Uh, this is Jeremiah chapter number 42, verses 1 to 5. And um, you will see that, the, that this, uh, these people come near and they acknowledge to the prophet and uh, saying that, that they will do whatever the Lord commands them to do. Jeremiah gives his answer. Then you'll notice they say, then they said to Jeremiah, the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not, even according to all those things for which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us. So God is introducing himself as this faithful and true witness. If they are going to overcome, it is because they need to do whatever he commands them to do and let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. Thirdly, the beginning of the creation of God. That is the last time that God introduces himself to this church at Laodicea. Notice he points them to creation and notice he references the fact that he's the beginning of that. Well, does that not point us back to John 1? Does that not point us back to 1 John 1? The fact that Christ is the beginning, he is the beginning, and it uses creation as, you know, creation is as far back as man can know, but Christ at the very beginning of man's knowledge, Christ is the beginning. And is this not the everlasting gospel that man is going to have to believe? In Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says that an angel goes to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation and kindred and tongue. This is a fulfillment of Matthew 24 and verse number 14. Notice what the everlasting gospel is. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that, it points them to creation, that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, the beginning of the creation of God. So all three of these introductions are ways that God has already introduced himself unto the nation of Israel. Uh, the very next verse, verse number 16, is this famous reference to uh, you're not cold, you're not hot, uh, you're lukewarm. And again, uh, this is the only time in the Word of God where the word uh, lukewarm is used. So 
What is this reference? Okay, you're neither cold. You're not hot. You're somewhere in between. I would, what God is saying is, I know what to do if you're cold and I know what to do if you're hot, but you're somewhere in the middle. You need to repent of this lukewarmness. Well, what is this cold and hot being referenced in verse number 16? Well, the cold, that is easy. Is this not what Jesus prophesied of this time? Again, I, the premise that I'm giving to you is that we are in the time of Jacob's trouble. During this time of Revelation 2 and 3, did not Jesus prophesy in Matthew chapter number 24 that during this time that the love of many shall wax cold? Matthew 24 and verse 12 And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The love of many shall wax cold. Well, how has God established in his word how that the nation of Israel shows their love for God? Their love is going to wax cold. Well, countless scriptures. Matthew 14 15 and verse 21, John 15 and verse 10, 1 John 5, 2 and 3, 2 John 1, 6. Here's just a few of them where, where it is just said over and over again, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. That's John 15. Uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So, Christ prophesies that during this time, the love of many, the keeping of the commandments, and you'll find all through the book of Revelation, the reference to the the keeping of the commandments, that that love is going to wax cold. Now, this church at Laodicea, they're not cold, but they're cooling. They're cooling. Their love of God is cooling. Their keeping of the commandments is cooling. And so God is not pleased. So I believe that is the reference to being cold, the reference to being hot. So they have not made themselves cold, but neither have they made themselves hot. Well, what is this reference? Well, I believe that this points them to a parable. This would be the parable in Matthew 21. You'll remember that there is a a parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21 where because of the action of the husbandmen, those that God put in charge of the vineyard, that God is going to take away the kingdom of God from them and give it to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. That is from Matthew 21. That parable is verse 33 down through verse 46. You notice it's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has been delayed for the nation of Israel, but it has not been taken away. But the kingdom of God has been taken away. That new birth. Remember the exclusiveness of salvation being unto the Jew. Well, that has been taken from them and given unto another nation. Well, that nation... Uh, of course, is the Gentile who have brought forth the fruit of the kingdom of God during this age. 
Now, I believe that there's a reason why, biblically, that God says that he did this. It's not only because of their unbelief and their rejection, but he also did it to provoke them to something. Here we see the kingdom of God being taken from the Jew, given unto the Gentile, and the reason that he gave it unto the Gentile was to make the nation of Israel hot. He did it to provoke them to jealousy. And as you know, jealousy is always portrayed in the word of God as a fire. (laughs) You know, if you were ever in a relationship where you were jealous, it just, it heated you up. Well, this is a biblical principle. Notice um, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter number 11. In Romans 10, 19, Paul said, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, do you see what this means? Israel already knew this. They already knew it. They were already told this. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. Well, he's quoting Deuteronomy 32 and verse 21. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Paul, even more clearly, gives this principle in Romans 11.11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. And then notice why. For to provoke them to jealousy. His attempt was to provoke Israel to jealousy, to bring them back to him. But you'll notice as of Revelation 3.16, they have not been provoked to jealousy. They have not come back to him. So what God is saying in verse 16, okay, your love hasn't waxed cold because if it did, I would know just to bring you judgment. But you also have not been provoked to jealousy You're neither hot. You're somewhere in between. You're lukewarm. You're making me sick. Israel, make up your mind. Are you going to wax cold or are you going to be provoked to jealousy? Make up your mind. We now go to verses 17 and 18 which I believe 17 and 18 is one of the many times where the kingdom of heaven is compared to the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 17, the reason that they're not provoked to jealousy, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You have all the things that you need physically and earthly. So notice verse 17 is speaking of earthly things. Verse 18 are speaking of heavenly things. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. 
that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Well, verse number 17, as we know, this points us back to the parable of the man who had to tear down his barns and build greater barns. This points us back to Luke chapter number 12, verses 16 through 32. Notice in verse 17 of Revelation chapter number three, they think they have everything that they need physically, everything that they need. They have need of nothing. Their physical needs are met. That's like the parable of the rich man in Luke chapter number 12. Notice he just was rich. He just, he's called a rich man in the parable. And he has so much. And notice his rest is in his earthly things. But God says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, that's the kingdom of heaven, and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, therefore I say unto you, then notice, take no thought for all of these same things that they're to take no thought of in verse 17 of Revelation 3. Notice he speaks of all these earthly things. But then um, he says at the end, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven, but you must first seek the kingdom of God. And that's verses 17 and 18 of, uh, of Revelation chapter number three. Kingdom of heaven, verse 17, first they must accept the kingdom of God, which is verse 18. I counsel thee, I counsel thee, to buy of me gold tried in the fire. I believe that is Job 23, verses 8 through 11. That is the famous, when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. That thou mayest be rich. We will see in another church, this, thou mayest be rich is their deliverance. It's their deliverance from the enemy. And white raiment. No, this, this is heavenly raiment. This is not the raiment mentioned in verse number 17. Now you'll notice verse, well, you say, well, Raymond isn't mentioned in verse 17. Well, the lack of Raymond is mentioned, being naked, far, you know, as uh, far as I know, the definition of naked would mean without raiment, without clothing, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. We saw that in Ezekiel chapter number 16, how he's going to reveal the shame of her nakedness to all of her lovers and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see how the blindness is going to be taken away from the nation of Israel. Um, this speaks to them being blind and it's well established in the word of God, both Old and New Testament, that it's the nation of Israel who is blind and needs to be made to see. Then you'll notice in verse number 19, and as many as I love, remember, 
thou hast left thy first love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Here's a place where two Bibles will come in handy. If you turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 8, Deuteronomy, chapter number 8, I just want to show you how interesting Deuteronomy 8 corresponds with Revelation chapter 3. I would like for you to compare Deuteronomy 8 verses 3 through 5 with Revelation 3 verses 17 through 19. Notice in Revelation 17 and 18 compares the clothing and the physical things that they can obtain themselves with the clothing and the physical things that God can give unto them. That's verse 18. So verse 17 is what they can do for themselves, for their own provision. Verse 18 is about the provision that God can give unto them. And then verse 19, he speaks of chastening. Chastening, all right? Go back to Deuteronomy, chapter number eight. This is at the end of their wilderness wandering. And you will notice how God provided for them, gave them things that they could not give unto themselves. Um, Verse three, and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only. You notice if you read in the letters in Revelation, there's a reference to hidden manna. This is speaking to how God once again will care for them in the wilderness. Uh, the manna is there, but it is hidden how he is going to provide for them in the wilderness. But by every word, I'm back in Deuteronomy 3.3, 3, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now notice the raiment that he provided for them did not wear out. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. So in Deuteronomy 8, verses 3 and 4, he is showing them how he miraculously provided and took care of them. And that is what he is telling them in Revelation 3, 17 and 18. Look, do not put your uh, survival and satisfaction in that which you can produce for yourself, verse 17. I am going to provide for you just, I'm going to provide for you in the wilderness just as I did for your fathers back during those 40 years. I am going to give you clothing that shall not wear out. I'm going to feed you once again as I did for them, but I am going to chasten you. Go back to Deuteronomy 3. Remember verses 3 and 4 was about God's provision for them in the wilderness. And then verse five, thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. And I would just encourage you, compare Deuteronomy 8, three to five with Revelation 3, 17 through 19. I believe what God is telling this church at Laodicea, as I provided for your fathers in the wilderness, so will I provide for you. He is preparing them to once again be the church 
in the wilderness, that he is going to take care of them. Let's get to this famous reference. 20, 21, 22. What door is Jesus standing at knocking? I have only heard of two options, and but I want to provide for you, which I believe is the biblical interpretation of this passage. The only other two things that I've ever heard, the most famous would be is God is knocking on the door of people's heart. The next that I have heard is that we've kicked Christ out of the church and he's outside knocking, trying to get back in. Those are the two pictures, so to speak, of uh, what God is saying. But that is not what has been declared in Scripture. To understand this passage, we once again have to consider Christ's parables. Christ's parables. We know that because of verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is going to point them back to the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are, two, there are parables where it speaks of Christ being at a door. Being at a door. The two that I would point you to would be John 10, the parable of the sheepfold. And then Matthew 25, the parable of the marriage where there are the virgins, those that uh, are ready and those that are not. You will notice in both of those passages, there are those who are granted entrance and there are those that are not granted entrance. The door needs to be opened unto them. And so... Knowing from verse 22, I have to consider Christ's parables to be able to understand what is being said in Revelation 3, verses 20 through 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne excuse me, down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To be able to understand uh, this parable, uh, I have to consider the parables of Christ where he speaks of a door, speaks of a door. So I'm first turning to John chapter number 10. John 10 is the famous parable where Christ speaks of the door to the sheep. You will notice in John chapter number 10, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So we see that Jesus is at the door of the, sh- of, the, of the sheepfold in John chapter number 10. Well, this is the door to which Christ is knocking in Revelation chapter number 3. Remember, 
upon eagles' wings are going to go into the wilderness. They are going to be given a place of habitation in the wilderness where they are going to be protected. That's Revelation chapter number 12. Uh, They'll be protected from the dragon. Remember, the dragon will send a flood unto them. But the earth shall open its mouth and will help the woman that is in the fold. So the one trying to get in some other way besides the door in John 10 and verse 1 is the dragon, is Satan. He is going to desperately try to get to this place of habitation in the wilderness. He is going to try to get to those who have entered therein. But they are going to be protected. He is not going to be allowed in because the only way into this place of habitation is through this door. Well, we are going to learn more about this in John uh, chapter number 10. So we know that there are those who are going to be granted entrance, but then there are those who are not granted entrance. Notice down in verse 26, there are those that will not be allowed into the place of habitation. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Um, There are those who are not going to be granted entrance. I believe that's the parable in Matthew 25. Remember, that's the parable of the virgins who half are granted entrance, half are not. Half are left outside the door. They are not allowed in. And the response is, I never knew you. They were not of my sheep. They were not of my sheep. So they were not granted entrance. Well, in order to understand this further, we're going to have to look a little bit into these other letters of Revelation, because I believe these letters of Revelation, they build upon themselves. Again, it starts with the very beginning of the nation of Israel and their relationship with God, their first love, and it ends with Christ bringing them back to the new city, which is going to be Revelation 3, 20 to 22. In order to understand that, there are some truths that we're going to have to take out of some of these other letters to Revelation. You'll note in chapter 3, the reference to the book of life in verse number 5. You'll notice that there are names in the book of life. Some are going to be blotted out and some are not going to be blotted out. So the book of life is going to contain the names which are not blotted out. That is those who are going to be granted entrance. We see that further in the way that Christ introduces himself in verse 7 to the next church. So we have the book of life, those names which have not been blotted out in chapter 3 and verse number 5. We then have this reference to he that hath the key of David in 
verse number seven. He that hath the key of David. Well, what is this key of David? Um, We know that this key of David has to deal with the house of David. So we know it doesn't have to deal, it doesn't deal with the church. It deals with the house of David. Well, this is an easy study. I say easy in that, (laughs) I mean, it's a, it's a, longer study is the reason that it's easy is that the key of David is only mentioned in one other place in the Bible. So it makes it easy. We can just go back and study this one. That is Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22 is the only other place where the key of David is mentioned. Now, again, there's a reason why we're temporarily leaving Laodicea because there's truths that we need to be able to understand. In Isaiah 22, the key of David is given to a man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. We're introduced to him in Isaiah 22 and verse 20. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now he is mentioned in other places, Uh, In the Bible, he's mentioned in other locations. So he is mentioned, uh, if you look him up, and you'll have to do that. I can't go to all the references. He's mentioned later in Isaiah. He's also mentioned in 2 Kings uh, chapters 18 and 19. He's mentioned uh, again in Isaiah 36 and 37. But notice what takes place. This is the prophecy of Eliakim. Verse 21. And I will clothe him, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government. Well, who's the thy here? Something is being taken from someone else and being given unto him. Well, that is up in verse 15, this man by the name of Shebna. He is the treasurer. But notice the designation given after the name Shebna in verse 15, which is over the house. That's key, which is over the house. Well, now, whenever you see Eliakim mentioned, let me just give you some references. We can't go to them all, but 2 Kings 18, 18, 2 Kings 18, 37, 2 Kings 19, 2, Isaiah 36, 3, Isaiah 36, 22, and Isaiah 37, 2. Now when Eliakim is mentioned, it will use this phrase, which was over the household, which was over the household, which was over the household. That's a key to be able to understand this prophecy. So Eliakim is given, he is now over the household. Well, whose household? Well, we're going to see that it's the house of David. Look at verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. His shoulder. Now notice the wording in verse 22. So he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? Compare Isaiah 22.22 with Revelation chapter 3. And verse 7, notice this key of David in Revelation 3 and 7, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. 
Isaiah 22, 22. So he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. So God is going to place him, the Bible says in verse 22, uh, 23, in a sure place. Now this is the, one of the many names for this place in the wilderness that God has prepared. Remember Revelation 12, 6? There's a place prepared of God. In Revelation 12, 14, it is called her place, meaning the nation of Israel. It is called a sure place. In Isaiah 22, verses 23, and then again in 25, it is called a solitary place. In Isaiah 35, and verse 1, it is called a peaceable habitation and a resting place. In Isaiah 32 and verse number 18, it is called a fruitful field in Ezekiel 17 and verse five. I'm just giving you a few references to the different names given unto this place that God is going to prepare in the wilderness for where with eagle's wings, Israel is going to be taken out to this place in the wilderness. And the one with the key of David is going to be fastened there. He is going to be there. He's over the household. But notice what else in verse 24. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. Notice the offspring and the issue. The first thing is the offspring and the issue. He is going to know who is of the house of David. He is going to know those whose names have been blotted out and those who have not. He is going to know who will be granted entrance to this place of habitation. He is in charge of the door. And what is that called in the Bible? the one who is positioned at a door or a gate, what are they called? They're called a porter. That's what they're called. You can see when the Levites were set up for the worship of the temple, that there were porters that were set up at certain gates and certain doors. Well, Eliakim, who's going to be given the key of David, this key of David will have the offspring and the issue of the house of David, that is the lineage of who the house of David is. He is the porter of this door. Let's turn back now to John 10. Remember, we were just there. This parable of the sheepfold. This parable of the sheepfold in John 10, I believe, is the place of habitation in the wilderness where God is going to take the nation of Israel, where they are going to be protected from the Antichrist. That's verse number one. But Christ is going to come through the door. But notice the reference in verse three. To him. Well, who's the him? That's verse two. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth. 
and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. So do you see the progression in these letters? The letter which states, okay, there's a book that has the lineage, the offspring and the issue, those who have not been blotted out, those that will be given entrance through the door is in this book. Well, this book is the key of David. Revelation 3 and verse 7, to the house of David, the key to the house of David. Whoever this one opens the door to, no man can shut it. But he that, that he shutteth it to, no man can open. We see in the parable of, of Matthew 25, the door is shut to those virgins who are not ready, who are not prepared. They were not given entrance. Depart from me. I never knew you. Your name has been blotted out. So we have the book of life where the names who have not been blotted out, the key of David, which is the offspring and the issue, those who will be granted entrance into this place of habitation. And now at Christ's return, at his return, he has come to this place of habitation he has come to the sheepfold, just as he says in John chapter number 10, and he is coming in through the door. To him, the porter openeth. The door is going to be opened unto him. He is going to come in unto that fold. And you'll notice in John chapter number 10, the purpose of him coming into the fold is to lead them out. Verse 3, and leadeth them out. So I believe Revelation 3 and verse 20 is Christ entering into this place of habitation in the wilderness to lead out his flock, to lead out my sheep. And then comes the promise in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Verse 21 is speaking to him coming in unto that fold and he is going to lead them out and he's going to lead them. That's a reference to him leading them to the kingdom, to the kingdom. And that is in many places in the Bible. We'll just turn to one, which is Isaiah 35 Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, the entire uh, chapter of Isaiah 35 is speaking of this sure place, solitary place, peaceable habitation, resting place, praise prepared, her place, fruitful field. I've just given you all the references that we've just had. Look at Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. There's the hidden manna. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. That's Isaiah 32. The cedars of Lebanon shall grow up over this place and protect them from the hail which will fall from the sky. That is um, Isaiah 32 verses 18 through 20. And the, uh, 
the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, again, this is speaking of the provision that God is going to bring unto them. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellencies of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. There's the second coming of Christ. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. There's the eyes of, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. That's talked about in Isaiah 29. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. There's the wilderness becoming fruitful. And the parched ground shall become a pool in the thirsty land, springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And then notice in verse number eight, speaks of, okay, so verses one to seven is this solitary place, this place in the wilderness. Well, Jesus is going to come knock on the door of that sheepfold. And the Bible says, if any man hear my voice, and the, the porter is going to open unto him. And he is going to come in and he is going to lead them out. Then you will notice, starting in verse number eight, he's going to lead them out. And a highway shall be there, and a way, verse eight. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring man, though fools should not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Christ is going to lead them out. And that is what is said, um, that last reference in verse 21 of Revelation. He's going to lead them back to the kingdom. Can you not see Psalm 23 described to us in Isaiah 35? Remember Isaiah 23, green pastures, still waters. That's the place of habitation where God is going to take them and provide for them and take care of them. But then notice he's going to lead them out. Now this is going to be faith Because notice this way of holiness in verse number eight. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast, but the redeemed shall walk there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Verse number 10 is Psalm 24, the triumphal return to the city. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs. And then notice this reference, an everlasting joy upon their heads. That's the crown of life that is mentioned in these seven letters. This crown of life mentioned in the seven letters to uh, the seven churches, we know that this crown isn't talking about the believer because the crown can be taken away. Notice Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. 
those who endure to the end is going to receive a crown of life. The only other time the crown of life is mentioned is James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. What does the Bible say? Those who love him, those who keep his commandments. The love of many shall wax cold, but those that do love him are going to receive a crown of life. That is what they're going to wear upon their heads in Isaiah 35 and verse 10. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. (laughs) This podcast has gone on quite long, but what I've attempted to show you is that I believe that what is said to the church at Laodicea are things that have already been said about the nation of Israel. I believe these letters in Revelations 2 and 3 is preparing the nation of Israel to once again be the church in the wilderness. Just like they were before, they are going to be again. Um, What I've tried to do is just show how everything said points back to scripture that's already been given, that's already been given. We don't have to leave the pages of the Bible to see the interpretation and the understanding of these texts. That's all that I've done. I'm not, I'm not making fun of anyone who thinks of anything else. And again, if you do not believe, if, if, if I have not persuaded you by what I have shared with you today, and again, I've tried to do the best that I can uh, just to, this is an overview is all that it is. I could go on for hours about this. But I just want to say once again, at the end of this podcast, at least perhaps I've provoked you to thought. If I've, if I've done nothing but drive you to the scriptures, then I guess I would be happy. Uh, I am not looking for anybody's that-a-boy or anything like that. I'm not, not whatsoever. This isn't about anybody winning. This is about the Word of God being right. And so the premise of this podcast, and I appreciate so much Josh and Chad allowing me to do this. Uh, there's no way <laughs> if they were here responding, there's no way I could have ever gotten through this in this amount of time. And so uh, I just want to thank you, Chad and Josh. Again, before the listener hears this, they're going to hear it multiple times and agree that this should be put out on the podcast because they are just as much of Beckwood's theology as I am. Listener, I love you. Thank you for listening. I know this was a long episode, but thank you for listening. Simply consider these things. I'd love to hear what you have to say, but signing out from now, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Backwoods Theology.